This is TDPS. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. And today we return to the world of true crime. True Crime TV Club is back. We're not talking about love Yay. and romance like last week. We're leaving well, all those soft things. it may come up because, you know, we're still up. very sort of, you know, all about love and romance. But, yeah, it's True Crime TV Club time, guys. And, uh... And I have to say, Christopher, um, yes. I think that Tyler Perry needs to um, make a true crime TV show. I We wanted to have true crime. This episode will first air during what is Black History Month, um, mm-hmm. February of uh, 2021. And we wanted to find a true crime episode to highlight that was about, you know, more about that community that centered mm-hmm. in and around that community. And I thought, you know, surely this will be easy. I'll just, you know, we'll just get a true crime show about the assassination of Medgar Evers or um, mm-hmm. the Emmett Till tragedy or um, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. And I mean, I cannot believe that there is not a movie about the Emmett Till tragedy. There was one thing listed there on Amazon isn't. and wow. it wasn't available and it wasn't mm-hmm. really a movie. It was a 50 minute, whatever documentary. I just, I'm, I, I was just sort of blown away by it. Fruitvale station was there. So there's, there's some, I, I just felt like, wow, this is not, you know, you would think at least these huge, high-profile, civil rights-based mm-hmm. crimes against black people would be mm-hmm. well depicted and well... And I was quite startled not to really find much. So I That's, think there is yeah. a real call for um, I, true crime, because God knows if any community has true crime tales to tell... right. Yeah, I just was really. I, I, I was, went about I was quite it. Quite startled. We I we was, settled yeah. on the one that we did because we could find it. Well, and also we we hit a bunch of dead ends, and we saw opportunities to do things that we didn't want to do, and we didn't want to do older movies that were from white creators about black trauma, essentially. Well, and it those was, would have been you know, movies. You know, we were right. looking for an actual true crime. You know following the investigation and talking about the crime itself in a that right, sort of right. docudrama kind because that's what TV club is about. Yeah, we could have done Mississippi Burning or um uh Ghosts of Mississippi. But yeah, I think that's right. the Medgar Evers one. Um, but I yeah, I, I, mean, I really I really wanted to do something that was actually from a black journalist or a black creator, which spoiler alert is what we ultimately found in terms of True Crime TV Club. But I also went looking for black figures in history who had made an impact on forensic science or um, criminal investigations or crusading black detectives in police departments. And I came up, I found nothing. And I don't believe it's not there. I don't believe the figures and the people are not there. I believe they haven't been written about. I believe it's like a hidden figure situation where this story has not been told in a mainstream way yet. And that was also disappointing as well. And yeah, well, I, I think that, I'm a huge fan of Tyler Perry's. And so shout yeah. out to you, Tyler. You know, we're counting on you. This is an area that you could be making more um, out of. God knows you got that great big studio and you're one of the most successful producers in history. So, And has taken impeccable you know. care of his employees during the coronavirus pandemic, sheltered them and provided them with testing and really done yeah. a good job for them. Well, but has also, been able to create an entire bubble for a whole 
full productions to complete while everybody is still quarantined. And it's only recently this situation has improved on the sort of mainstay true crime shows like Dateline in 2020 and 48 Hours. Dateline is not necessarily looking for a huge headline-grabbing case. They just look for cases that are sort of solved or have a resolution. And only recently did those cases start to include black people in any kind of reasonable numbers. And they weren't civil rights-based cases. They weren't... No. uh, They didn't... But they were just about missing persons. The same thing that happens to every community. And they have been largely invisible from that that roster in the past. And I think, I do think there's a programming choice that a lot of people are making. And I think it's essential for their programs, which is they want to celebrate uh, black history month. Also gay pride. It's true with movies that are not specifically focused on trauma and loss, but this is true crime TV club, which we do here. So we we program it accordingly, but I think we wanted to talk about figured with high, high profile crimes, like the Philadelphia murders, the, um, Mm -hmm. The uh, the Medgar Evers case, Martin Luther King. You'd think there would be a true crime television show documentary about the Martin Luther King, and there kind of wasn't. Yeah, there really wasn't. Yeah, so I was really surprised about the investigation. You know, like there's lots about Dr. King and good, but um, mm-hmm. but not about the investigation in and around that actual crime because it was a crime. Right. Absolutely. And, but, and like, we're not diminishing it by calling it a crime. We're trying no. to sort of portray it for its ugly truth. It was a crime. It was an act of terrorism, yes. a lot of these things. And what we're going to talk about today involves a lot of terrorism against the black community. So trigger warning for that. Um, but so what we did find was what, part one of a three-part special that uh, a black journalist named uh, – oh, God, I'm blanking on his name. Did I not write the name down on my own damn show notes? Eric Isn't Chuck Quinn, am I fire? I think it's Tony Harris. You may recognize him from CNN. He was on CNN for a long time, and he made a three-part special with Discovery ID. He sounds ID. a lot like Lester. They both have that wonderful sort of deep – Lester Holt from NBC mm-hmm. – yeah, have that absolutely. wonderful sort of deep. Well, there were moments when, because I'm such a big Dateline fan, when he was just narrating. Yeah, I was like, my God. Yeah, it was. Um, uh, it was an incredibly uh, powerful special. I'm glad we chose it, and I think. Yeah. I want to tell you if you didn't watch it, and it's not a requirement that you do on True Crime TV Club, but uh, we're going to serve it up for you in enough detail that you don't have to. Uh, It focuses on three different cases that basically kind of formed the basis of the foundation of the Southern Southern Poverty Law Center. And we're going to focus, I think, mostly on the first case, which impacted the black community Yeah, I mean, we'll mention the other two, but the the one that really was the the sort of kickoff or the thing and kind of the the one that sort of created the Southern Poverty Law Center, which Mm -hmm. I was surprised to find out was kind of a more recent development yeah. Than I would have thought. I would have thought that it was, you know, from back in the 60s and had grown up over the period. But it it appeared, at least from this special, I didn't do a deep dive into the Southern, Southern Poverty Law Center, that this was something that had actually um, taken place more contemporary. And more about that in a minute. But first, you know, yeah. like... Okay, well, let's let's get right to the details of the crime that we're going to discuss. It's March 21st, 1981. We're in Mobile, Alabama, where a 19-year-old black man named Michael Donald is walking home. It's late at night. Um, two white men, James Tiger Knowles and Henry Hayes, are cruising the neighborhood in their Buick. They see Michael walking, and they slow down and summon him to their car. They ask him for directions to a nightclub, and he begins to politely answer. And as soon as he is close enough to the car, they order him inside at gunpoint. They drive him to an isolated area. They beat him with a club. They put a noose around his neck and tighten it until he chokes. Then they throw him in the trunk of their car and they slit his throat. Then they drive his body into the city of Mobile and they hang it from a tree on Herndon Avenue for all to see. The noose they use has 13 loops in it and that is a signature of the Ku Klux Klan as we are told. Um, and this is sort of shared with us through a variety of interviews, but one of the interview subjects who is introduced right away is a gentleman. Oh my God. 
Where, where is not in my notes? He's the president of the Southern Poverty, Morris Dees, the president of the Southern Poverty Law Association. He is a white man. He has sort of curly, wiry gray hair. Um, and he's kind of narrating this story for us. And his role in it is not exactly clear to us at the, at, at the outset of the special. Um, it's very clear to Wil Wilbur Williams, who is a former Mobile homicide investigator and one of the first police officers to arrive on the scene, that this is a lynching. This has been displayed as a lynching. Yes, He's that it was a display purposes. It was yeah. about making a statement with this murder. It was, yeah. Um, it turns out that recently in the city of Mobile, a mistrial had been declared in the trial of a suspected black bank robber who was accused of shooting and killing a white police officer. A man named Benny Jack Hayes, who, oh, by the way, is the father of Henry Hayes, one of the two white murderers, um, is the head of the local chapter of the Ku Klux Klan. Benny decides in the wake of the mistrial declaration that they need to set an example to black jurors going forward by killing a black man as retaliation. So when the, when the murder first happens, there's not enough hard in, uh, evidence for them to uh, figure out who committed it. But after about two years, they examine news footage and police photographs from the crime scene, and they see two men, Henry Hayes and Tiger Knowles, lurking at the site after the body was found. They also see Benny Hayes, the local Klan leader and Henry's father, is also at the site. They then learn that... And talking the to the two of them. Exactly. When he reportedly said, of the body strung up from a tree, it's a pretty sight that's going to look good on the news and good for the Klan. When the police get this information, they bring Tiger Knowles in and he confesses under pressure and he agrees to testify against Henry Hayes. Uh, and that is when the trial lights up. And that is really when we're introduced to Morris Dees, who, is this the point at which he got involved? Was he involved in the initial trial, or is the, he's the subsequent trial? I think he's, I, I, had the, 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 I had the impression that he was involved from the start. Okay, right. Like, he's a, obviously, he's not a prosecutor, mm -hmm. right? So the, the the prosecution would have been handled by a public official. Right. Um, but Morris Dees was representing the family. Right. Right the, off. But the, the family Donald didn't family, prosecute right. him because that's not how that works. Right. Um, yeah, the McDonald's family was, it was just heartbreaking because like the, the mom called the sister called um mcdonald's sister what was his name it's, Billy? it's actually donald it's not mcdonald donald. it's donald yeah i made the same mistake too that's why i wanted to jump in i'm sorry it's what <laughs> it's donald it's not mcdonald yeah oh yeah okay so he called donald's sister mm -hmm. um and said your brother didn't come home last night you know he was the youngest in the family he was only 19 years old and then when it became clear what had happened to him the sister talking about the fact that nobody from the family could leave the house. They wanted, mm -hmm. they were sleeping on the floor and on the sofa because they, they just wanted to be together because it was such, imagine the sort of terrifying assault on your family mm -hmm. to have not only somebody, a member of your family brutally murdered in this way, but then displayed as mm -hmm. a sort of warning to other, you know, I don't know, um, people who looked like you, if nothing else, right. um, mm -hmm. at the time, just, just a horrific, a horrific crime. And, and yes. And so they went to trial with the, um, with the, with, with this witness, with this Tiger Knowles, I think it was the, you know, it was the prosecution from Mobile or Alabama, right. the state of Alabama. Yeah, we're going to end up talking, this is the first court case, and then we're going to end up talking about a subsequent court case. So on December 10th, 1983, and this murder happened in 1981. If you thought we were talking about 1955, no, this is 1981. Yeah. 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 Uh, so December 10th, 1983, Hayes is found guilty of capital murder, and he is sentenced to die by the electric chair. But Morris Dees at the Southern Poverty Law Center says, this is not enough. And this is not enough to make this hatred go away or to even well, curb it. Well, and this is a great point to... 
like, I think there is a bigger point to be made here at this moment, I think is as good as any. It is, as you pointed out, the crime took place in 1981, Mm -hmm. not back in the dark ages of the 60s or the 50s or whatever, but in 1981. And I, and it was the clan not only asserting themselves, but using it as a sort of PR initiative, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I think it is really worth pausing to note what happened just one year earlier. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. Do you have a question or comment about this podcast? Then come share it with us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the dinner party show, no spaces, and we'll do our best to answer it on the show. Just watch out for our aggrieved manservant, Shea Butters. He moderates the page and he's been known to talk smack about the two of us. Most of what he says about you is true, though. We can discuss this later. That's right, at Facebook.com slash The Dinner Party Show. No, I meant in the car. So, this crime, this hideous crime, this primitive, like you would think way from worser times in history, happened in 1981. And I think that... As we look at it in context, it's really important to note that the previous year, in 1980, Mm -hmm. after getting the nomination for the Republican presidency, Ronald Reagan chose as his very first appearance to go to Philadelphia, Mississippi, Mm. the, the city where the civil rights workers, the three civil rights workers were murdered, um... And make a speech about states' rights. Wow. Mm-hmm. Which is, in many ways, um, a coded language, considered mm-hmm. to be coded language for, you know, the Confederacy, for, mm-hmm. um, for racism. The, the, and in the, the Nixon era, not too long, the Southern strategy was begun to try and incorporate and encourage racist white voters to be included in the Republican Party. And then President Ronald Reagan in 1981 had really picked up that effort by going to this this place that is literally a symbol of racist violence Mm -hmm. and making this speech that more or less said... You know, we're on we're here for you. We're here mm-hmm. on your side. And within one year, the Klan was so emboldened mm-hmm. by this particular speech that they chose to murder this innocent young man mm-hmm. and hang his body from a tree in Memphis. I mean, Memphis in Mobile mm-hmm. as a PR moment. It's a it'll look good on the cameras, he said. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. The head of the clan there said, this is a pretty sight. It'll look good on the TV cameras. This was a PR choice. And the head of the clan says it by- brazenly and in public to a group of people across from the crime scene. It, that's how brazen the head of the clan's behavior was. Yeah. Because he had been encouraged by President Ronald Reagan mm-hmm. that, in fact, that he had their support. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I just really think that is an important point to be made here as we talk about great white father and great communicator, Mm -hmm. um, Ronald Reagan, that this is his part of his legacy, Mm -hmm. this hideous lynching and this encouraging and um, emboldening of the Klan. But fortunately... It was also the beginning of the Southern Poverty Law Center and Morris Dees, who, as we can pick up the tale now to talk about what it inspired on the other side of this hideous issue. 
Because Morris D's position is that Henry Hayes was not acting alone and that he was in fact following orders not just from his father, but from his father's organization. And he says these killers took orders from Klan leaders. And so together with Michael's mother, Beulah Mae Donald, he brings a $10 million lawsuit against the United Clans of America. And this is just six months after Michael's murder trial. And his assertion is that the Klan is a corporation It directed its members to commit criminal acts, and it can therefore be held responsible for those acts. And to prove this, they isolate three separate diabolical crimes as evidence that the Klan attempted to carry out white supremacy through violence. And those are, in chronological order, in 1961, the Ku Klux Klan attacked the Freedom Riders in Alabama. In 1963, I think many of us have heard of this terrible, terrible event, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama that killed four little girls. And in 1965, I had not heard of this. This was the murder of the civil rights activist Viola Liuza, who was actually a white woman who was murdered for her work on civil rights. I didn't know Uh, this one either. I didn't. I'd never heard of her. Morris Dees also presents a copy of The Fiery Cross, which is the newspaper of the United Clans of America. In it, it has an illustration called What Black People Deserve, and it shows a picture of a lynching. So they go to trial. Uh, We're now introduced to Richard Cohen, who I believe is currently the president of the Southern Poverty Law Association, who was new to the organization then, because as we said, the organization was new. Um, Tiger Knowles, one of Michael's killers, is on trial. He's testifying. He addresses the jury. He asks for permission to address the jury directly, which the judge grants him. And he says to the jury, everything that Morris Dees is telling you is true. We were essentially directed to do this. This is what the Klan wants. This is what the Klan instructs. He then looks directly at Michael's mother and asks for her forgiveness. <sighs> and Beulah Mae Donald leans back in her chair and says, Son, I've already forgiven you. Wow. <laughs> she is a stronger woman. Better man than, than I, I am. I, I mean, yeah. I, yay. Wow. Um, The jury deliberates for four and a half hours and they return with a verdict they find in favor of Mrs. Donald and against all of the named defendants in the amount of $7 million. The Klan is forced to deed their headquarters to Beulah Mae Donald and she liquidates it and she buys her first house. So Though becomes, I will say they also, she said that she was not at all interested in the money. Uh, yeah. This was at the time, this was a period in time when a $7 million verdict was, a, you know, it was a lot more money than it is now. $7 million is still plenty of money, but it was enough to decimate them. And she was far more interested in protecting other people's children mm-hmm. um, by putting an end to this terrorist organization. Yeah. Um than she was in in the money. And um, sadly, she died a year and a half after the verdict at the age of 67. But she did move into her first ever house. And her family members who were interviewed, and Michael's family members, of course, as well, say that she could finally be at rest since the case had been seen through to its completion. So that's kind of a summary of the whole, you know, and then what we are, the rest of the special goes into some of the Southern Poverty Law. It's also worth noting, just one more little note, that in 2006, the street where Michael Donald's body was hanged um, as as a sign to the people they wanted to terrify, the name Herndon Avenue was changed. The, The street is now named after Michael Donald. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, I mean, it's not wonderful, but it's fitting. It's fitting. It's fitting. It's just as a memorial to this great tragedy that this poor young man um, was, his his life was taken at age 19. Yeah. As a for being kind public relations choice. Yeah. He was just giving them directions. He was giving them directions. Asking for directions. Were you ever told? I was told when I first moved here that if a car pulls over and they're asking you how to get to the gay bar, don't answer because it could be they're trying to figure out if you're gay and they're going to gay bash you. They're going to hop out of the car. So I, you know, it's implanted that. But with Michael, I mean, it's just like they were just asking for directions to a nightclub. You know, like it's like 
was he supposed to ignore them and keep walking? And if he had, he probably wouldn't have been safe anyway. You know, drawing him to the car like that was about trying to make their crime easier to commit. But it doesn't mean it would have deterred them if he had just kept walking. It's just awful. Yeah, it was just an opportunity. Awful they just story. went out looking for a black man to kill. That's yeah, all I that just... happened. Like they were as a PR choice. Yeah. Because this horrible organization was, you know, looking to assert themselves and make a much more public stance about who they are, having been emboldened by the then current administ- Republican administration yeah. um, in the White House and by the ongoing efforts of the Southern strategy, strategy, which is still a component of that particular party's um, election strategy. They're still trying to get out the bigot vote on an ongoing mm-hmm. basis. We've just been through four years of, you know, and an attack on our own capital by... Um, an organization, you know, by people who were inspired by that kind of hate speech being a part of the political rhetoric of the party in power. It, it, mm-hmm. it is really, it is really, it is a, it is something that I, it, that is, I think a much bigger story than, uh, than this and that we really are going to have to lean into in the, um, coming months and well, years as we talk some more about what you mean about that and i also i want to ask you because i think for some people particularly who are younger they may not be as acutely aware of of all of these associations with states rights that you've made clear that have a historical precedent that it really was a cover for so many dire things it was about keeping the federal government really from enforcing integration racial integration that that was how states this banner of states right. rights Seeing became the, a popular the, the, concept the demonization of the federal government the the whole small government kind of um thing is is part and parcel of this whole notion of like yeah we don't need your help here we want to be able to oppress people and um suppress the vote and do whatever it is we want to and be segregated and take away women's rights to control their own bodies. And we don't want the federal government in here telling us how to do stuff. It, it has been, you know, it is not a recent development. It is um, very much what the civil war was about. You know, mm-hmm. um, slavery was the defining issue, but the, the states that seceded did not want the federal government telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. They wanted this sort of independent, we are a confederation of state governments that Mm -hmm. comprise the union. And that is the, what the country is. And there is, there are thoughts on either side that Mm -hmm. the thing that, the thing that this, this show goes on to talk about, um, a lot of other crimes that were in and around, uh, the, 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 the rise of the Southern poverty law center. And, I think they're worth looking at in a sort of overview kind of way. But the thing that the thing that stands out to me, the thing that seems to me to be the the elephant in the room that that we don't seem to be addressing um, even now um, is is something that is a belief that I've held for a while. And I've, I have to say, I've never really heard it anywhere else, but I believe that hate is a form of mental illness. And mm-hmm. I don't mean like I hate my boss or I hate my brother. or I hate that asshole who, you know, stole my car or whatever. Like and th- those are kind of human. I understand that sort of individual, but the irrational hatred of an entire group of people because of, what religion they follow or what color their skin is or whatever, who they sleep with is Mm -hmm. that's mental illness. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is, I don't think it's chemical though. It might be exacerbated by that or structural. And I think that people who are not as bright are more likely to catch it, if you will, but it is a form of mental illness. And I believe that we should be addressing it as such, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, because I think people are, buying into beliefs of hate that are destructive to them Mm -hmm. um, as well as to the people who they would harm the, we go on as we go on and talk about these other crimes, look at the people that we're talking about and the ways in which the choices they make are, I'm sorry, I don't know any better way to describe it. Crazy. 
mm-hmm. they are motivated entirely by the irrational hatred of people who they don't know. Mm-hmm. For whom and have they no have no connection to. And they have blamed them for things they have no connection to. They blame this group for things they have no connection to. And and, and I think the thing, and, and what the f- subsequent stories in this special were focused on a, a neo-Nazi named Glenn Miller and his specific targeting of the Jewish community. And we really wanted to focus more on Michael Donald's case because it's Black History Month. But, but um, we uh, this thing that I got out of seeing the Glenn Miller segments was the similarities to the language around QAnon, the word cabal to refer to Jewish people, this conspiracy of Jewish people who are taking over the government. It's all, some of it's been repurposed in the QAnon nonsense, but it's still the same language. There's this satanic cult out there that's out to destroy your way of life. And what I almost never see, what Glenn Miller never does in the the length of the, the second half of this special, is define what that way of life is, aside from these bumper sticker labels of white and Christian. White and Christian. Uh, okay, I, I'm sorry. Like, are we not allowing people to be white and Christian anymore? And I think it inevitably leads to the thing that it always does, which is discriminating against me for not being a member of your religion is not a right. It's not a fundamental human right. If you're losing the right to discriminate, you know, it, that's not that's not a loss of fundamental civil rights. And that's why I'm saying it might be beneficial for us to begin to look at this issue with the virus model right. in mind. Like mm-hmm. those people have become infected with that notion by people like Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump or the head of the Klan or mm-hmm. this Miller guy. But the Miller guy got the notion from somewhere else. They are people mm-hmm. that have been maybe not the brightest people in the world who've been infected with this notion of hatred as an explanation for the circumstances of their own lives. I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And Eric and I aren't just podcasters. And bitches. That's right. We're also authors. And you can buy all of our books at www.thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv and wherever ebooks are sold. At thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv, you can check out my Right Murder mystery series. Or sample my Burning Girl thrillers. The best part is, the more you buy our books, the less likely we'll end up filling the spot with an annoying ad for a napkin that counts your calories. The TDPS Network, alienating potential advertisers one promo at a time. Okay, well, then we should briefly touch on the Glenn Miller story, and it does actually impact the black community, even though most of Glenn Miller's crimes were against the uh, Jewish community, and that was really the center of his hate. Or intended to be. They're intended to be, yeah. Um, So the Southern Poverty Law Center, after their um, victory against the Klan, started looking into a budding neo-Nazi, a 42-year-old Vietnam veteran in North Carolina named Glenn Miller, who had established a branch of the KKK he called the Carolina Knights. He was a scary guy because he was a Green Beret who had been kicked out of the army for publishing neo-Nazi literature on army machines. Um, His goal was to establish an all-white nation inside the borders of the Carolinas called the Carolina Free State. He started really ramping up his hate campaign against a black prison guard named Bobby Person because this gentleman had filed a job discrimination complaint against his workplace. Um, on his behalf, the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, Law Center excuse me, filed suit against the Carolina Knights to stop their harassment of his. And in the process of filing that suit, they also targeted the fact that the Carolina Knights were beginning to operate as a paramilitary group. So that's right. what um, Glenn Miller was kind of about. And um, he, uh, the story is then subsequently how he managed to sort of evade you know not show up he was charged with one thing and then he didn't show up and he went missing and they eventually tracked him down but it was ultimately weapons charges that um stockpiling automatic weapons weapons he wasn't supposed to have all that sort of stuff which is very often the story with these white supremacists there's always a sort of separatist um ambition or well, agenda. An alienation you yeah. know a, a, a paranoia and a belief that they need to defend themselves against some threat probably imagined you know and, and I, I don't i, I don't want to like i don't want to sound like we're giving a therapist chair to psychotic racists here but can we talk about what they think that threat is like it always seems like 
it's just that they there's one thing they don't want to agree with and believe, and they're willing to blow up the whole fucking world over it, and, you know? And that's why I suggest looking at it from a disease model kind of perspective. If you see this as a form of mental illness, yeah, then the response can be, uh, you know, compassionate and caring and mm-hmm. helping people to see that, you know... That, in fact, this irrational hatred that they're carrying forward is eating them up. It's destroying their own lives. It is Mm -hmm. presenting them with a false picture of the world, the QAnon thing that you cited. Like, I I don't even begin to understand how anybody could believe any of that. It's Mm -hmm. so preposterous, and they, they don't even seem to need proof because it is this mental illness. So, So rather than... It being a battle with people over, you know, I in in a, in a traditional sense, it could be we could begin to look at the problem as how do we begin to cure people in a in you know in a loving way mm-hmm. of this irrational hatred that is fueling these dreadful acts and this rather self destructive behavior. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. this man that they go on to d- detail, Glenn Miller, like th- this is a series of progression of this man destroying his own life mm-hmm. over the pursuit of this hatred of something like I, there are no examples that I'm seeing of Jewish people ever coming after Glenn Miller. I don't it know. It doesn't any even sound like he knew of, any Jewish people. It doesn't sound like he no. ever met any. I, it's just crazy. And even the people he killed ultimately were not Jewish, even though that's what he went. He went to a Jewish community center and killed people and none of them were Jewish because that's, you know, because you can't like tell by looking at somebody, you know, no, like, I, it was, I, he, he was, he was dying. He thought he study. was dying of emphysema. And so he saw an advertisement for auditions for a talent show at the local Jewish community center in the Kansas city town where he was living at this point. And he went there with a shotgun and just started shooting. He killed a child and his grandfather in the parking lot, assuming they were Jewish when really they were just the, the auditions were open to everybody. But the flyer had said, Jewish children from all over will be featured in this talent show. And so he murdered these two people that were not Jewish, and it inspired the mother of the slain child to start an organization that was about understanding between an interfaith organization, essentially, understanding between religions. But that in its own way, and I think that's great and it's wonderful, but when it comes to Glenn Miller, this was not a religious feeling that he was having. This was, as you're describing it, a pathological hatred of a group. You know, he Absolutely. That... that- that based on nothing, yeah. based on this infection that he had gotten at some point in his life through whatever, like life is really mysterious and and hard to understand and confusing. I, I'm the first to admit it. One of the great revelations of my life, it has been a benefit to me over time, but it is not the it has was not the easiest pill to swallow, was coming to accept the fact that the outcome of events was not being decided on any kind of criteria that was knowable or even particularly fair. Mm-hmm. Like, we would like to believe that from being a good person and working hard that you will succeed. Mm-hmm. And that is not true. Mm. It 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 is, it might be, but... I can, and I'm sure we can all look around and find plenty of examples of people who did not work hard and were not good or well be, you know, well behaved or did any of the right things who have succeeded, you know, beyond your wildest imagination. So I think people become frustrated because they are looking for a logical explanation for the way in which life unfolds and there isn't one. Mm. And mm-hmm. living with that un, unresolved doubt is really mentally challenging. And I Mm -hmm. think people look for a lot of ways to explain those things that are maybe um, not uh, uh, empirically... Yeah, well, not empirically supportable, right? Mm -hmm. Like, people are looking for an explanation that offers them, you know, a story that that appeals to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways there, there, there are some that are more destructive than others. I don't know. It's hard to say religion certainly offers people 
a, an explanation for life unfolding or consolation. You'll, you know, get 21 virgins or you'll get eternal life or, mm-hmm. you know, those kinds of offers. And I think in much the same way, these these ideological groups and political groups offer people that same kind of explanation for the baffling quality of the nature, the true nature of life. Well, right. I, clearly, the message that the Klan is sending out to people is that you don't have the life that you're entitled to because of this other group. And it's like, how the fuck? How, how the fuck do you isolate a group of people that have been enslaved, maligned, uh, treated with discriminatory laws for decades of American history? How do you blame them? For the problems of the privileged group. How does that work? I can't even make that connection. (laughs) This man was so insane that he saw that he was, he felt that he was the victim of genocide. Mm -hmm. That white people are systematically being wiped out by genocide, by these, by these groups that are like, I'm, I just, it is hard to explain insane behavior in a way that is comprehensible. And this man was insane. Yeah. You know, like insane. whatever you wanted to say about him, he was dangerous, certainly, but it was because he had this, this virus, this hate virus, because hate is insane. Irrational hatred of whole groups of people is, I think, a form of insanity and should be treated accordingly. Mm-hmm. You know, people should be helped. Mm hmm. I think at the very but least, not let off the group, hook for their crimes. I mean, obviously no, they're not. Absolutely yeah. not. I think they should be helped before they get there. Right. It's a, it sounds like what you're suggesting is almost a form of deprogramming, right? What you would do with people who had fallen into a cult who needed to be brought back to sane, rational thinking. That's how people people are leaving the QAnon movement now, and that's how they're talking about it. I had to be deprogrammed. My loved ones yeah. had to say. I think there's an element to it now which is really frightening, which escalates it, which is the detachment from reality that, that can come when you go down an internet rabbit hole. You know, it used to be you had to subscribe to the Klan's newsletter and and read it in some, I, I assume, not a public place unless you were surrounded by other supportive Klan members. But now you can, you can go into this alternate two-dimensional reality where message boards go on forever and click, 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 click. That's really scary to me. I mean, that's part of how we got the riot on the Capitol. That's that that makes evil happen really quickly. You know, it makes it manifest well, it, into action. It, it's a way of it, in fact, people getting infected yeah. with this insanity a lot more easily. I think the greatest defense against it is better education in general. Mm-hmm. I think that better educated people are less likely to fall for this kind of bullshit mm-hmm. um, just by virtue of the fact that they have you know, more data on which to draw. Like, I'm just not willing to accept myself things without more proof than that. Mm -hmm. Like, Q is one day going to tell you what the real story is, but for the meantime, just believe that, you know, the Queen of England is an international drug smuggler. Like, no. I'm going to actually need real proof. It's The thing that strikes me about it is, is that in order to believe any of that you have to trust absolutely no one i mean i I, like it's this complete loss of trust in any institution this belief that anyone who has amassed any kind of power is corrupt that anyone with any sort of experience has become corrupted and is now profiting from whatever it is that they do and you must treat them with suspicion it seems so extreme to me i mean i think there are arguments against political corruption and cronyism and things that happen in government that we need to be on guard for of course but this idea that everyone in Inside the, if you're driving in the traffic jam, you are part of the traffic. The traffic right. jam is not another thing. It's the sense you always it's talk about. It's not being this. done to you. You are actually a part of the traffic you're jam. You're a part of it. And it's the sense of total separation, like drain the swamp. You live in the swamp. Like <laughs> We all live in the swamp. It's one giant fucking swamp. I just, and you always pointed out when I bitched you about my homeowners association to get a little bougie in my examples here. But people are like, I'm going to sue the homeowners association. You are a member of the homeowners association. You right. will probably have to pay part of the payout if you win you're suing your own home when you do that we are tasked with the people yeah the people who attacked the US Capitol 
were attacking their own Capitol building. Right. I, I, d- yeah. Like right. this is your, this is your temple. This isn't somebody else's. Like you don't need to attack it. It part of the reason they weren't defending themselves against you is that it doesn't. It belongs to you. Mm-hmm. It belongs to all of us. Like. The sense of alienation is born of, is a part of this mental aberration that I'm talking about. This belief that you are somehow separate, as you talked about, from the traffic jam, from the United States. The United States is the government by the people. Like, you are a part of that. Right. You're not separate from you. It's not doing it to you. It's doing it for you. Mm-hmm. Tax money is collected to be spent on you lavishly. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not keeping it in a vault somewhere. They're actually spending it on you. Stop believing that taxes are somehow this evil, corrosive thing that are out to get you. Like, as I always say, it is very unlikely that you're paying enough in taxes, um, that anyone is paying enough in taxes to pave the road in front of their house, Mm -hmm. let alone build their neighborhood hospital or airport or freeway or educate their children or any of the other things that their tax money is going to do. Believing that somehow you're being attacked or that you're under attack is, is born of a sense of alienation of believing that you are somehow separate. And I think that you pointed out really wisely that a lot of that stems from this belief that if I accept the federal government's help, I'm not going to be allowed to discriminate in a way that makes me comfortable right? And a way from which I draw a sort of psycho- psychopathic, I would say, comfort, right? I will not be allowed to, to, I will have to admit that other people are my equal. I will have to admit that marriages that are not like my own are right. And it's not about having to admit any of those things. It's that you cannot codify into law, policy, and discrimination things to, to discriminate against people who are different from you. You tell the Eastern Airlines story in South Carolina, I believe, where it was Eastern Airlines wanted to set up a big base of operations in South Carolina, but they were going to be beholden to a large national anti-discrimination policy. And so South Carolina, which frankly could have used the jobs, said, oh, no, never mind. We don't want you here because we don't want to be told what to do. We, we're, you know, we're, it's states' rights, right? And they, well, that company and departed. Yeah, they didn't, yeah. Want, they didn't want union in, in, in South Carolina. And so now they have an airport where, you know, two planes fly in and out of it every day from it to take you to Atlanta where you can actually go somewhere. Right. Or you can drive up the road to Charlotte. But yeah, their airport is really not a happening place mm-hmm. because they basically wall themselves out rather than succeed. I think that um that the other the other side of it is that those I see those people as being exploited mm-hmm. um by people. Like yeah, I guess that it's it's about not being able to discriminate against people in the way that you want to, but I think it's also about coming to believe the things, the messaging from those groups that are exploiting you, that somehow those people are depriving you of what it is that you um, you want. Either they're speaking to your hate or they're inspiring it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think both of those things are true, and I think that... that, that that education is the solution to all of it because mm-hmm. you'd be less likely to fall for somebody's flim flam mm-hmm. and maybe um, less likely to be overcome by your own infection with an irrational hatred of people who you don't actually even know, mm-hmm. you know, which is, you know, like if you hate somebody because they did you wrong, like, mm, all right, maybe not your best choice. Mm-hmm. Like, Mrs. Donald had already forgiven that man because she knew that hating him would never have served her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, you know, on a personal level, there's that. But that kind of hatred, I understand, and I don't see it as as insanity-based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that that's situationally based, and overcoming it, I think, is to your benefit, but I can understand it. But when you just hate a group of people just because they're a different group of people... You know, like I always say, everybody in the Middle East worships the same God, and mm-hmm. yet they're all fighting about other, with other people over their religion. I find that just mm-hmm. astonishing. Mm-hmm. You know, that that to me is at the core of the insanity of that kind of hatred that is incredibly destructive and not reality-based. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I was really hoping we would be able to solve this issue in the course of one podcast, but unfortunately, I think if, <laughs> if hundreds and hundreds of years have not solved it, we're not going to be able to do it in an hour today on this recording. But, um, but I hope that as we're, you know, like celebrating Black History Month and other, you know, taking other times to observe um, oppressed and minority groups of people, you know, Pride Month and all of the other ones that are out there, that we begin to look at this in a, in a truer sort of sense. Mm-hmm. You know, that we begin to look at this as what is, what is, how can we move away from hatred being a way in which we conduct our affairs. How can we try and solve this in a different way? Because hitting people back is not going to fix it, Mm -hmm. right? We're not going to fix mental illness with mental illness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not going to be the solution, right? Mm -hmm. Hating each other more is not going to fix it. The, The polarization of our country, the hating of the other side is not going to fix the problem. The problem is for us to let go of hating each other. And that's just going to have to come from knowing that we're actually both, we're all pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that the hatred is not an explanation of the circumstances and the confusing, the baffling nature of life. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a reasonable assumption to tell you that we are going to continue a version of this conversation in our next episode because we are doing back-to-back True Crime TV clubs. Uh, Next week, we bring you an installment which features the PBS documentary American Experience Oklahoma City, which explores one of the deadliest acts of domestic terrorism in American history. And it is going to touch on a lot of these issues around white supremacy and hatred. This is, of course, the bombing of the Muir Federal Building in Oklahoma City in 1994 that we're going to be talking about. Well, I don't know. I think it's almost a true crime movie time because yeah. it's really, it's a long-term, but it's, yeah. It's, it's a documentary. It yeah, it's an hour and a half, but it's a documentary. We started True Crime TV Club with these uh, hour and a half documentaries, most of which were so bleak and depressing that we <laughs> we went in the direction of wise with knives and... and yeah, more sordid fare, but this is a sort of a return to our roots, if you will. Um, and it, but it's also topical. I think yeah. we're in a moment of considering this as a country after what happened on January sixth, and yeah. as we look to um, moving towards, I hope, some kind of uh, a more curative uh, view of where we are as a country and a people. Yeah. Um, not just here, but I guess all over the world. But yeah. certainly we can start here. We can't start in other people's neighborhoods. Absolutely. Well, until then and forever after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw-Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.